Hi, today I'm speaking with Alejandra Spector. She's a licensed master social work and psychotherapist, and she works at Central Austin Psychotherapy. Um, Alejandra Spector grew up in El Paso, Texas, a border city with deep and historic roots in Mexico. Alejandra grew up in a family of border activists. Her father, Carlos Spector, is a very well-known asylum and human rights lawyer in El Paso, and her mother, Sandra Spector, is a longtime community organizer who runs the family's law practice. Alejandra has been a part of the human rights struggle at the border since she was a child. And her therapy practice reflects her border upbringing by focusing on the mental health impacts of systemic oppression, racism, and recognizing the importance of self-care for people dedicated to social justice work. She also focuses on the traumatic impacts on people who are displaced from their homes and forced to migrate. We're going to unpack all of this in our conversation today. Thanks so much, Alejandra, for being on the Border Chronicle podcast with us. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah. So first of all, I want to talk about our shared experience of working together at Mexicanos in Exilio. And this is a nonprofit that was formed by your parents, Carlos and Sandra, to aid Mexicans who were forcibly displaced by violence. Um, And the nonprofit provides people with counseling and other services so that they can rebuild their lives in exile in the United States. And at an early age, you were placed in charge of uh, the nonprofit and these counseling sessions. And I was a volunteer at the time. Um, And from working with people at Mexicanos in Exilio, I learned a lot about how trauma can have many impacts, sometimes unintended consequences on people, both mentally and physically. And I was really impressed by how you took that on such a difficult task at such an early age. And so this is a rather long intro in asking, uh, what did you learn from from your experiences with Mexicanos in Exilio? And how has that informed your practice now as a, a in psychotherapy? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I've actually thought about this question quite a lot. And I think the conclusion that I've come to is that I wasn't ready. I think I was like, 22 or 23 at the time and it was a lot it was it was uh basically trial by fire it was boot camp nothing I've ever done since (laughs) honestly I don't know if I ever will do anything quite that intense again in in my life um and I've had to to really do a lot of my own work and unpacking of that time to be able to do the work that I do now because of just the degree of vicarious and yeah, the the degree of vicarious trauma that kind of came from that. Um, yeah. And, and what, what year did Mexicanos and Exilio start? I was trying to think back, what, you know, when, when did it start? And I guess kind of what, what did you take from that experience uh, that you've now brought to your practice, because I remember sitting in on, I think, some of the counseling sessions and really 
you know, I'm a journalist. I don't have a background in, in therapy or, mm-hmm. or, or mental health. And, and I certainly had, you know, some trauma as well from the things that I had had witnessed. Um, yeah. I mean, at this time it was, it was really awful what was happening. Um, just a little bit of background about your, your father, his, his, uh, his grandfather, right, was the mayor of the town of Guadalupe, which is a mm-hmm. small, small Mexican town in, in the Valley of Juarez, right across from Tornillo, Texas. And, and you can literally look, you know, from Tornillo yeah. into Guadalupe, you can see the church, you can see the, the homes. And at this time, and gosh, what year was that? Was it 2012? Um, so I would say kind of the rumblings of Mexico and Cynic started in like 2009, 2010. I was still in college at the time. And then things really started taking off around 2011 and 2012. And that's around the time I got involved. I started getting involved while I was still in college at UT Austin, getting my undergrad. Um, and I actually, because I, you know, we're Jewish and I was very involved with Hillel, which is the um, Jewish student organization. It's, an, it's a national um, organization and, and different schools have their own chapters. And so I was pretty involved with uh, Hillel at the time in their social justice work. Um, and so I started around 2011, uh, end of 2010, maybe. Um, when we did a Passover Seder for, um, it was, a, it was called the Mexican Jewish Passover Seder. And we brought members of Mexicanos in Exilio to tell their stories because the Seder is about really immigration and about fleeing. Um, so that was really, and, and it, it turned out beautifully. Um, and that was really my introduction to Mexicanos in Exilio. So I think I was a, I was a senior, um, 2011. Yeah, I was very lucky to be able to attend that cedar and it was very, very powerful, I thought, you know, mm-hmm. uh, just this continuum of, of practice and culture and history and, mm-hmm. uh, this sort of shared history between, uh, the Jewish diaspora and the Mexican diaspora. Um, and, uh, and I remember at that time, you know, as a, as a reporter, what had happened is that Felipe Calderon, the the president of Mexico at the time, had unleashed the military into the streets to fight uh, drug cartels. Mm-hmm. And instead of, um, you know, tamping down the violence, the violence just exploded, basically. And there were extrajudicial killings by the Mexican army and uh, the violence really skyrocketed and Unfortunately, until today, there's still these extrajudicial killings happening uh, by by the Mexican army. But at, but at this time, we could see these small towns like the town where your mm-hmm. family was from in Guadalupe just being decimated um, by this cartel battles between the Sinaloa cartel, the Juarez cartel, the army, which we the Mexican army, which we now know through Enado Garcia Luna's uh trial on the east mm-hmm. coast and all the testimony there that the Sinaloa cartel was actually aligned with the Mexican military which is what we suspected at the time because 
the military had a barracks in in Guadalupe, the town. They had a checkpoint going in and out and still people were being massacred. You know, homes were burned to the ground. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it looked like a, a war, basically. Is, yeah, is what it, it, was. it was a war. It didn't yeah. look like it was. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, I say that because I, I still mm-hmm. feel now that it's never been fully acknowledged for, for yeah. what it was, because once you saw it, it was just so unimaginable. And so at this time, whole families were fleeing uh, large families because they were being everybody was being targeted uh, from Guadalupe. And I think to this day, the town is probably only has maybe 20 percent of the population that it it had before. Yeah. Yeah. So so it was an absolute emergency situation where these families were fleeing to the United States, you know, literally with, uh, you know, fleeing bullets uh, and their homes were being destroyed and burned to the ground. And and, uh, your family having such a personal connection to that town, Mm -hmm. um, your parents represented most of those families in their asylum hearings. And, and then that's how Mexicanos and Exilia started and how, mm-hmm. and how you got involved. Uh, and then I, I just volunteered because I was just so uh, affected by it. You know, I wanted to do something constructive more than just writing about it, but something um, more, more constructive and, and yeah. And sitting in those counseling sessions, it was almost like counseling, for myself as well, you know, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but then also realizing the many forms that trauma takes and that people were still, still experiencing now being in exile in the United States, their homes are so close in Mexico, but they can't go back. They've been burned to the ground. Um, yeah. you know, people are still being killed. Uh, so yeah, so that was really your your trial by fire, literally into mm-hmm. uh, the world of counseling and therapy, and um, and so you know, I I guess I'm 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 making these long comments. <laughs> <laughs> it's a therapy session for me. No, yeah, uh, I mean you were there, <laughs> and you were such an important part of it, and you know I. I have just, I mean, I think you all are wonderful, you and and your whole family. Um, And for me, having you guys in Austin when I was in Austin was, it was really wonderful for for me to to have you all there. And um, I know that my parents are incredibly fond of of you as well. And you were, yeah, you were an important part of that. Yeah, so I'm a big fan of the Spectre family and all the work that you've done collectively to to really help help people in El Paso and and the surrounding uh, border communities on both sides of the border. Um, so I'm going to segue now into the mm-hmm. current situation in Texas, which is very mm-hmm. very heavy and oppressive politically. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're in social justice and humanitarian work, it can feel very very depressing and even hopeless at times. So mm-hmm. what are what are some good self-care strategies for people who are doing this difficult work? And how can you continue to, to do this work and not burn out? Yeah, that's a question I've also pondered a lot. And I, you know, wish I had a, a more hopeful answer. 
um, than I'm about to provide. I mean, I think there's a lot of ways that we can take care of ourselves, right? There's a lot of ways we can take care of ourselves. And I think, right, covering the basics, which is something that a lot of um, people, especially in social justice work, don't do, right? Like, are you eating enough? Are you sleeping enough? Are you drinking enough water? I mean, those, those really basic things are so important and are so foundational. And then I think finding work out, things you enjoy outside of the work that you're doing um, is also really important. I think for me, art uh, and art projects has become really, really important because it's creating something um, just for the, the sheer pleasure of creation. And so finding your thing outside of it, you are still a person outside of your social justice work. Like it becomes such a big part of your identity and it's important work. And, you know, it is a part of your identity, but it's not everything about you. Um, and I think also just, I can't stress social support enough. So having your people, people on your side who really care about you, who really know you, um, I think, this work can also be, even if we're doing this work in groups, it can also be incredibly lonely. And, and I think part of that is because everyone is really traumatized. It's, it's hard. Um, so I think something that I stress a lot, because I also work with folks who are involved in um, activism work, like a, a good amount of the clients that I see um, are have a, a background in social justice work and, and something that I stress a lot to them is, you know, who's in your life, who's helping you. Um, I think therapy is also, you know, I'm biased, I'm a therapist, but I think therapy for me has been an incredible tool. I've been seeing my therapist for a really long time. Um, and actually, you know, even before I started, you know, suggesting it for, for the people at Mexico Medicine Exilio and, and that project that we had of getting them therapy, the reason that I was able to do that was because of my own experience in therapy. And I'm still with the same therapist I was with. Um, uh, she's, man, she's earned, earned all her money <laughs> and then some. So I, I think therapy can also be a, a tool. Yeah, and 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 since you bring up the 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 sort of therapy program that you and your family set up for Mexicanos mm -hmm. in exilio, and this is for Mexicans who had to flee violence and are are now in exile in the United States, can you talk a little bit about that program that you that you all set up? And and is it still ongoing? Is it are you still doing it? No, it it went on for about a year, and that was because okay, so this was in two thousand. 11 or 12 um and virtual therapy was not a thing then and so this was a virtual therapy project on skype with people from a small town in mexico and so the technology was a lot for everyone and then you know a lot of folks had moved to you, you mentioned tornillo well, a lot of our members had moved out there. And at the time, like internet connection was pretty shoddy. And so, you know, coordinating that effort was, took up like a big part of my job. And so, you know, once I went to grad school, there was nobody to do that anymore. And so, but we did it for a year. And so really how that started was, you know, I didn't start 
I didn't come into the organization with this intention of starting a therapy project. I really came in after that Seder because I realized I had a knack for organizing. And I guess it's probably from watching my parents do it their entire lives, my entire life. And so I was really doing a lot of outreach. And so I was speaking to schools. I got invited to go to Sweden. They did a play about one of our members. Um, I was helping other members talk to the press and coordinating programs. Uh, we did a, a, a bicycle caravan through Texas. Um, and, and that was really my role. And then I think because of my own background, as, as having had some really excellent therapy, what I started noticing was how much trauma was impacting our ability to do this work. And also how insensitive, um, you know, members of, of certain press outlets could be about asking people to relive their trauma and not having, not being trauma informed and asking their questions. And what started happening was that, you know, people were getting sick, people were burning out. There was fights that would start, um, you know, like not physical fights, but, you know, a lot of squabbling and, and, of, and of course, right, like. Um, none of us were prepared for this. And so I was, realized that, it, you know, what a tool for not just because I, I you know, we came to, to care so deeply about one another and it was something that we could offer, um, but also what an organizing tool therapy could be. And so we started looking for therapists in El Paso. And we couldn't find any um, or, you know, uh, people were afraid or they just they didn't have the language skills. And of course, we didn't have much money or any money. And so we couldn't find anyone. I reached out to the APA, which is the American Psychological Association. And I I mean, I guess like at 22, I was like, mm, I have nothing to lose. Like, you know, um, I called the APA. They got back to me and I talked to the president and was like, hey, we can't find anyone in El Paso. Do you have anyone? We'll do it over Skype. And because this was 2012, she was like, well, we don't know if therapy virtually works. And so I can't in good faith um, do that, which is, you know, really funny after the pandemic when everything went virtual um, but at the time you know and so my cousin in Mexico City Leticia Calderon Chelius who is also an organizer an academic well-known in Mexico City um, she was also it, it really became a family effort she was also um, very involved in her own way she said what if we find therapists in Mexico City and she was childhood friends with somebody who um, worked high up in an organization called ILEF, which is Instituto Latinoamericano de Estudios de la Familia, which was actually started by Argentinian and Chilean refugees in Mexico. Um, she shared what was going on and they were very moved. And so they really, we could not have done this without them. Um, I have so much respect for these women. They formed a coalition of about 15 therapists 
and they offered their services free of charge. Uh, 12, it was, I think, eight or 12 sessions. And um, it was incredible. Uh, and at the end of that, you know, we did it for a year, which was quite a feat. You know, as I mentioned, the, the technology issues um, and having to, you know, if they couldn't get service there, we'd have to drive them to El Paso, which is like a 45 minute drive. Um, so it was really quite a feat to, to do this for an entire year. And at the end of the year, out of their own money, they flew to El Paso and they got to hug their, their clients, their patients. And uh, we put together a, a workshop at uh, UTEP, UT El Paso, um, to, to share the work that we did with other social workers. And they wrote a book um, called Resignificando la Vida about the experience they had with Mexicanos in Exilio. They started a working group called Shimbal. Uh, it was originally called Camina. So I think Shimbal is the Nawa word for walk to walk, like to walk a path. Um, and they're still a working group. So that came of that, right? They, they work in Mexico City now with migrants. And it, it came directly from the experience of working with migrants and immigrants in the United States asylum seekers. And I think it was just, it was so meaningful for, for our members to have Mexican therapists, because I think on the border, you know, I don't know, people may not, you know, really know that just like, the way Mexico is, right, is that uh, so much is centered in Mexico City, and it's such a big country, right, like the border, the northern border is so far away, and so I think people felt really forgotten by their country, and so to have Mexican therapists who understood that it was really impactful and it meant a lot. And so that experience was really what drove me to become a therapist because I saw, I saw this, that this could be political work um, and it could be really hopeful work. Yeah. I mean, you created this incredibly groundbreaking, innovative thing from just sheer need and necessity mm -hmm. and, and an incredible act of uh, solidarity by national solidarity between people in El Paso and people in, in, in Mexico, you know, coming together to, to do this therapy to help people who are in exile, which is just mm -hmm. incredible. Um and uh, as a side note, I mean, you mentioned, you know, reporters coming in when 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 these horrible uh, massacres were happening and and in these towns were were being attacked. And you know, I learned a lot from this experience of of reporters mm -hmm. coming in and really wanting trauma on demand, like they want mm -hmm, mm -hmm. they want that heartbreaking story, they want that story of violence. And people are having to tell these traumatic events over and over and over again, or are expected mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. do it on, on demand for a TV camera or for a microphone. And just the kind of impact that can have on people who have lived these experiences. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, really made me think about how to, to go about doing my journalism, my reporting in a, in a different way that didn't, uh, 
re-traumatize people. And um, Mm -hmm. so I I took a, I went to the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma and did a fellowship there. And and I really recommend that to to journalists. Uh, The DART Center teaches you how to do trauma-informed journalism and also how to handle your own trauma as well, because of mm-hmm. the things that I was seeing, you know, the, the, the murders and, and just the horrible uh, massacres and, and things that you have to deal with as, as a, as a journalist or as a therapist or, a, you know, a border resident or someone who's witnessing those, those traumatic events. Like how do you, how do you process that? And then how do you also mm-hmm. find balance in your life, you know, cause I know my family did not enjoy that period of my life because yeah. they, they had to hear about it at the dinner table, you know, and they did not want to hear those things. So like you said earlier in, in terms of self-care, it's really important to have friends, to have people that you can talk to, not necessarily your family because they don't want to hear those things. Plus they're very worried about you. You know, they're like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you were, you know, at a store where a bunch of people were massacred, you know, or you're, or you're going to a federal prison in Mexico and, um, you know, that can have an impact on your loved ones. And just to don't bring it, try not to bring it home with you and find that balance, right? It's really, it's really, really difficult. Um, I, I wanted to ask you, so you mentioned that in Impaso, it's very hard to find therapists. And mm-hmm. do you think there are distinct mental health challenges for people who live in border communities and uh, especially for people of color? And is there just a real lack of of, of therapists and, and places where you can get that kind of help? Yeah. And so I, I practice in Austin and I've always practiced in Austin, although I'm virtual. So I do go back and forth. Uh, between, I I was not as much anymore, but I was going back and forth to El Paso. So I'm not as plugged into that community. But from what I'm hearing is that uh, I think it really starts with our education and the fact that becoming a social worker, becoming a therapist is actually incredibly expensive and incredibly taxing. and, And you're expected to do a lot of free labor, like, um, you know, in social work school, you have your first internship, which is like, I don't even remember how many hours, but you're basically working 20 to 40 hours a week for free in an agency. And so you do your first uh, internship, then you do some more classes and a second internship, which is even more hours for free. Um, UT School of Social Work is actually having walkouts right now, because that's like free labor, you know, it's, we need more paid internships. And then on top of that, you know, you graduate, you have to pay for your LMS, uh, for all of your tests. And I'm still in supervision. So I'm paying for supervision and that's 3000 hours of supervision. And so it's incredibly expensive. It's, um, and, and so what ends up happening is that not a lot of people of color are becoming therapists. And so that really hurts people of color who are looking for therapists because they don't have the same lived experience. The statistics, I don't have them exactly off the top of my head, but I think it's something like five to 10% of 
therapists are identified as Latino. It's even less for Black therapists and Indigenous therapists. Um, so that's a real, I think, barrier. And so even in El Paso, which is like what, like 88% Mexican, Mexican-American, there are mostly white therapists. So I think that's a challenge. And I've had clients um, who I see, I work with, you know, a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of uh, uh, people of color. And they've told me they've had kind of terrible experiences with white therapists who just don't get it. Um, and, and also very few therapists have any experience with immigration or understanding that process. And so I also work with, with folks, a good amount of folks who are, grew up DACA, with DACA. So yeah. People. Mm-hmm. I mean, just from your life experiences and being bilingual and bicultural, it's, I could imagine that would be incredibly uh, frustrating for people to to talk to a white therapist who mm-hmm. they would be educating right to get up to their speed uh mm-hmm. and i guess the the fear there is that they they have that negative experience and then they just give up on on, yeah. therapy, on therapy when it when it's so badly needed you know and there's this huge disparity um i was going to say i also think and it's it's changing sort of but I think a lot of therapists also don't have any sort of political analysis and that hurts people. Right. Right. Because I know in your, in your work, you really focus on systemic oppression, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. huge right now in, in Texas and along the mm-hmm. border. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, very intentional targeting of, of people of color, of LGBTQ people, very deliberate, very deliberate repression. Uh, and and that has a profound mental health impact on people, I imagine. And and if you don't uh, acknowledge that or recognize it, then it's further damaging to somebody's psyche, right? Yeah, and uh, I think something that I I say a lot is like, are you internalizing and blaming yourself for something that is actually systemic? because a lot of people do internalize it and then people think that they're losing their minds or that they have, you know, a lot of the depression and anxiety that we're seeing right now is a, is about the world we live in, right? It makes sense. Like listen to, to the anxiety and the depression. Um, And, and I, you know, I would never tell someone to not get medicated or to not deal with, with depression, with anxiety, but I, I'm also very clear about, this is a response to what is happening right now. Right. And especially coming out of the pandemic, I would imagine when things really uh, were compounded under the pandemic, you know, it's just loneliness mm-hmm. and isolation and depression and just, you know, with the pandemic on top of the systemic oppression mm-hmm. as well, you know, that I think people are still coming out of that and still really reeling from that and trying to figure out how to, to deal with all those things. Yeah, and um, another big population that I, I work with are, are folks with disabilities because I have experience with that and um, I'm immunocompromised. And so for a lot of people, the pandemic isn't over and they're still having to isolate even more because a lot of people aren't willing to take precautions. Right, yeah, that 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 is a, a very... Good point. Um, you've also worked with people 
at the T T Don Hutto Youth Council, mm-hmm. families at the T Don Hutto, uh, which was a family detention center uh, where they were holding families at one point, and then they were holding, mm-hmm. I think, I think women after that. What was that mm-hmm. experience like in in counseling people who are in family detention, immigration detention? Yeah. So at the time that I was there, um, it was only a women's detention center. And so it was during my last year of grad school, and I had the privilege of being an intern at the YWCA here in Austin, which does a lot of really good work. And so they had a program um, where certain therapists would go into the detention center and we did group therapy. And it was actually mostly art therapy, because when you're working with people who are in an active trauma situation, you don't want to do trauma therapy um, because you're just sending people back into that environment. And trauma therapy is um, is intense. Right. And so what we really focused on in there was helping people connect with one another um, feeling heard and having. And I think this is where art became so important to me was just seeing how how you know the the women would tell us after after these groups that like this is the first time I've felt human um because you're being treated like a number in there it was awful um you know and I even with all of the experience I've had in hearing stories to actually go into the detention center and to see how people are being treated it, it was, it was horrifying. Um, it was cold, it was sterile. There's people there who were sick and who weren't getting treated. Um, you know, people in, uni- they all have to wear uniforms, which really is dehumanizing. And yeah, there wasn't much therapeutic work we could really do in that environment. And so our focus was really Let's have a space where people can to do a little bit of body work, a little bit of somatics, get some of that tension out of their bodies, and let's let's do a little bit of art to be able to create and and talk about some of your past experiences through the artwork. Yeah, I think I think in the twenty years that I've been writing about the border, I've become just more and more uh, convinced that art and music. Mm-hmm are some of the most effective tools that we have, I think, uh, for, for people to, to rise above the traumatic experiences that they've had or to, to communicate, uh, mm-hmm. to communicate things that are difficult to communicate. You know, I think, mm-hmm. I think artists mm-hmm. and musicians are, are so important to that, you know, especially now when things seem so, uh, repressive, you know, especially in in Texas with the current uh, political climate. Um, And, you know, people who are displaced and forced to migrate, you've also counseled people that are are on on that migrant journey. And and, Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's an interesting... uh, area of study that you're involved in and it's called the Ulysses syndrome which Mm -hmm. is fascinating 
And I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about what the Ulysses syndrome is and and, uh, and that area of study that, that you're working in right now. Yeah. And so I've, um, you know, I'm still learning about it because it's really something that I've never seen an, any like English speakers work with. Um, it's something that, you know, I've given several presentations on the concept and I'm actually going to be giving one tonight. So this is good timing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I've been like, I actually was introduced to it by my cousin, Leti, who like, uh, fell in love with this professor and and this is it came from a professor in Barcelona uh, Joseba Atrategui and he coined the term right the story of Ulysses the, the Odyssey right so that that sort of hero's journey and that's where it gets its name um, he coined the term because he wanted to sort of separate the experience of the Ulysses syndrome from a disease or an illness, because what we use in the United States, which is like the gold standard, is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Illnesses. And so in a lot of settings, you actually have to diagnose your patients or clients for if you take insurance or if you work for an agency, like it's, it's a requirement, which is ugh, for me very, very painful and one of the reasons I have chosen to work with the people I work with now because I don't have to do that. And so what he's saying is that migration, right, especially extreme migration. And so he it's Ulysses syndrome, but he also calls it extreme migratory grief. Um, and, and he works. Um, yeah. That it's, that it's basically, it's, it's a response that makes sense to to these situations right it's not a disease although he does sort of say that if you fit the criteria for like a depression or a ptsd then it's depression or ptsd but a lot of people don't fit that criteria and so really he's saying it's a syndrome which is different than a disease right a syndrome is a a, a collection of symptoms rather and disease is something that is very specific that includes different somatic and emotional symptoms. Right. And, and it's something that very much has a political dimension to it as well, right? Yes. I mean, there's climate change, there's corruption, political repression, all these things that lead to people being forcibly displaced from their homes and, and being forced to to migrate somewhere else, which is really, I think, going to be one of the defining issues of this of this century climate change, mm-hmm. mass displacement, mm-hmm. mass migration. And I, I feel in, in some ways that I think Mexico, people in Mexico have been being a lot more creative therapists there about, about this phenomenon in, in how to relate mm-hmm. to it and how to sort of identify it, I suppose. What Atrategui uh, does say is that and this was written, you know, he started this concept in 2002, but that there are differences in modern migration in terms of just the way people migrate, the issues that uh, arise with, you know, with climate change, as you were saying, um, with the way that laws work now in the receiving countries. 
Um, so there is, uh, he, he, and that's why he says that he wanted to coin this term because we don't have a, a, a great, we, we never did, at least in, in the West, right? We've never had a great um, like conceptual framework to work with it, but, but that modern migration kind of deserved its own, um, this, it's, I guess like this own, its own concept or its own framework. Right. And I mean, and we do now have more walls going up globally than we've ever had. You know, the the global north is essentially walling itself off from the global south. And in 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 companion with the walls is also this really xenophobic, racist rhetoric that in turn causes violence, political violence, you know, domestic Mm -hmm. terrorism. I mean, we've seen that happened in El Paso with the Walmart massacre in 2019, where a white guy drove all the way from North Texas purposefully to target Mexicans and Mexican-Americans. And, you know, he was he was repeating this great replacement and invasion rhetoric that, you know, we hear Mm -hmm. many elected officials repeat all the time in Texas. So it has direct violent consequences. Um, so it is an increasingly uh, violent world in which to to migrate. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, as a consequence, your your type of work is incredibly incredibly important, uh, and uh, I really hope there will be more Alejandro Specters soon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I I think part of the problem is is that the way that our system is designed here in the United States, and I agree that in other places and, and in Mexico, I think the contact that I've had with therapists, there is a more flexible um, framework, right? I, I remember telling some of these therapists that we worked with and he left that, you know, we had in a lot of places we had to diagnose and just like the look of horror on their faces when I told them that. Um, but it's by design, right? Um it's it's to put the onus on the individual. There's something wrong with you. It's not systemic. And you know, there's um, there have been movements in the past to 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 push a different um, framework. Uh, there's you know, liberation psychology, uh, which came out of um, Latin America, South America in the 1970s. You know, the liberation theology and um, the pedagogy of the oppressed that that says that's very critical of Western psychology and is saying that you know right again that Western psychology is very individualistic that it's very apolitical and that that's problematic. Right, I guess in in uh, mainstream world we would call it gaslighting, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is why I think that term has become so so popular. You know. Mm-hmm the term gaslighting, like uh, that it's the individual's problem and not a symptom of a larger, like just screwed up world, basically. Yeah. And the other thing that liberation psychology says is that part of the treatment is organizing, that we are subjects. We are, And this is where I find hope, right? You asked about hope earlier and I kind of <laughs> avoided the subject a little bit. Yeah, I noticed I really, that. Yeah. <laughs> No hope, but no hope. no hope. And that's not what I'm saying. I think where I found 
hope and where I continue to find hope. And honestly, like, I think I got this to like kind of wrap, you know, wrap this up in a bow is that it it did start with Mexicanos in Exilio. Um, my father, despite everything, is an incredibly hopeful person. Like sometimes I am just in awe of his hope hopefulness, you know, given all of this work. Um, but I think where I find hopefulness is is in this idea that we have agency. We think we don't have agency, but but we do, right? We are not objects; we are subjects, and and we can actually construct the world that we want. Um, is it gonna be easy? Are we going to be guaranteed a win? Honestly, probably not, right? Like Guadalupe is, but things haven't gotten better, but you went down swinging, right? You weren't helpless. Trauma is you know, too fast, too soon, too much, and a, and a, a a great indicator of whether or not you are going to develop like full-blown PTSD is when you feel helpless. And so if we're organizing, then we are saying, it's a message that we're giving ourselves, the messages that we're giving other people that we can do something about, about all of this because Right now, especially in Texas, it's so easy to feel overwhelmed and that this is so much bigger than us. But the fact of the matter is, is that we actually do have power. Um, and I think that's where I get my hopefulness. And that's really something that I've taken, right, again, like I said, from, from the work that my parents have done. You know, my dad says that, like, if you can't right? You can't save the world. You can't save the country, but if you can save a family, well, that's really, that's incredibly powerful, right? We, we did save lives. Um, and so if you can save a community, you're also setting an example of what can be done. Um, and so that's where I find my hopefulness. That's what I encourage my clients to do. That's part of the liver the liberation psychology theology framework of like if we are to be mental health professionals, we have to one be political and two encourage our clients to be political. And a lot of therapists in in the United States and in the West are like, oh no, you have to be apolitical. Don't be putting your views onto other people. Um, but you can't avoid that right now. Yeah, you can't you can't avoid it when you're swimming in it and it's all around you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I th thank you so much Alejandra for for speaking mm -hmm. to the Border Chronicle today. I've really enjoyed this talk and I've learned a lot from it. And I I will link in the in the show notes to uh some of the various texts that you referred to and to Mexicanos in Exilio and uh thank you so much for for taking the time to speak with us. Yeah, thank you so much. You've been listening to the Border Chronicle podcast. The Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This episode was edited by me, Steve Heiss. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform. It will help other people find the show. You can read and listen to more local border journalism on our website, theborderchronicle.com.